So like Pat said, we're starting off a new series today for, for predominantly the rest of this term, looking at um, the fruit of the Spirit under the title of Developing Your Christian Character. So, so if you are wanting to grow in who you are in Christ, then listen into this message over the coming weeks because I think God's got something to say for all of us. He's certainly spoken to me as I was preparing this message. How are we going with this? Is this going to work for us? For some reason it's not working. That's right. I'll get uh, Dan to step it through for me. Actually, uh, how are we going? If it's not going to work, just step it through, it's fine. So this morning our focus is on love, learning how to love. Um, this, this message may be just a tad longer this morning because I want to set the basis for the, um, for the series over the coming weeks. So that's in the first part of the message, then I want to go to uh, 1 Corinthians 13 for the second part of the message. And the danger that I face whenever I preach on love is that I only preached on it three weeks ago. Uh, or two weeks ago, caring for one another. And uh, when you preach on love, it, it's a really well-known subject and people tend to zone out. So I've, I've brought my lunch with me today just in case people start to zone out and um, I'll take a snack in the middle of the, uh, of the sermon as well. Hopefully we won't need that. I do have something in there for the sermon, by the way. It's a common thing. But it's not always easy to find or describe love, is it? Now, I've, got a, I've, a, 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 I've memorised the definition for the love that I'll be talking about this morning. But I think it's great to hear sometimes from children and get their perspective on love. So, I found this illustration. I think you'll enjoy it. Greg, who's an eight-year-old, said this about love. Love is the most important thing in the world, but football is pretty good too. Uh, May, who was uh, nine years old, she remarked, no one is sure why love happens, but, but I've heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. <laughs> Great perspectives for young people. When asked what falling in love is like, nine-year-old Roger said, it's like a cyclone where you have to run for your life. <laughs> I think his perspective will change. And Leo, who's age seven, isn't all that interested in love when he says, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. <laughs> and the final one is a young fellow called Robbie. He's eight. He's, he recognises the power of love and the inevitability of being ambushed by it when he declares this. Love will find you, even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five. Now, remember, he's eight. But the girls keep finding me. <laughs> Some fun things about perspective on love. Let's see what the Bible says. And uh, like I said, I want to set the scene for this series. So I'm going to be looking at the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, uh, that's good. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 26. And I want to make some observations about... Um, this study on the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll be looking at for the next nine weeks or so, and, uh, and see if we can have a great 
foundation to look at these verses from and to look at the aspects or the virtues that are mentioned in here. This is what Galatians 5 verse 16 through 26 says and you probably read it before so um, I'm sure you'll know the verses. Verse 16, so I say, this is Paul writing it to the believers at Galatia, live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Anybody, anybody experience that? Yeah, yeah, we know what God wants, we know the spirit's saying, but we do the wrong thing. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, Paul writes to the Galatians and to us, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then the great verse comes in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do we need those today? Yes, we do. And so we're going to discover what it means for us as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus Christ, to see these virtues of Christian character developed in our lives. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. A familiar passage. We we hate all the yucky stuff in that passage, but we love that verse 22 and 23. And that's what I'm sure we desire for ourselves, those things to be evident in our lives. But I want to tell you this morning, as we look at these few observations, the first thing is, that we cannot create create fruit of our own. There's no way. Verse 17 reminds us that the sinful nature and the spirit are contrary. They're in conflict. So so the sinful nature that we've been saved out of, there's still trappings, hanging ons of that in our lives, but we are in conflict over that because we're involved in a world that focuses on the sinful nature. The fruit of the spirit can only come from the Spirit of God. It can only come from God. And as I read in verses 19 to 20, those yucky things that come out of selfishness, the immorality, the impurity, all those sort of things, uh, are what we uh, tend towards, sadly, in our world, but they're not what God wants. God is the one that will bring about the fruit of the Spirit in our life. But have you ever thought about this? We can't just wake up one day and say, well, I decide this morning that I'm going to be more loving towards everybody. Or I'm going to decide this morning that I'm going to be more peaceful towards everybody. And suddenly we are. Does it work that way? No, it doesn't work that way, does it? It's a, fruit is not something we do, it's what we display. Let me, let me, let me explain that. There's a difference between works and fruit. There's a difference between what we do and who we are, what our lives are changed into. So in a, in a machine, a factory, uh, sorry, a factory, a machine in a factory works and turns out a product but it could never manufacture the fruit that it's producing. Is that correct? 
So if I want a tin of pears, you, take, you go to the factory, the pears are all produced, but the machine produces the tin, the tin of pears comes to my shelf. The machine doesn't actually produce the fruit. The machine produces the container of the fruit. So for us, fruit must grow out of a life of walking in the Spirit of God. Our flesh, as it were, Paul was always on about the flesh and and the spirit. Our flesh produces dead works. But when our flesh is uh, under the control of the spirit, we produce living fruit. That's the difference. One person has said that vices come out of our sinful nature, but virtue comes from the spirit's work in our lives. So we can't create our own fruit. Another observation is that... uh, We can't have fruit apart from knowing Jesus. That fruit is always dispensed to us through the Lord Jesus, through the Spirit of God. But we have a responsibility in that. Galatians 5.25 said, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Interesting picture there. It's a picture of an army marching forward in the time of, of Paul, which was the Roman times. And it's that army keeping in a straight line, taking orders from the leader of the army. And so for us, it's yielding our lives to the God's spirit so that he can direct us and he will ripen the fruit in your life. So the fruit we cannot create on our own. The fruit comes from God's spirit, enhancing our life. The second observation is the fruit, oh, sorry, the fruit of the spirit is a package deal. What do I mean by that? In verse 22, it uses the word fruit, not fruits. So it lists all these things off. Uh, Love, peace, patience, uh, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But it calls them fruit, not fruits. So each one is not a fruit. And what do I mean by that? Some commentators say that the fruit that's being talked about is love. So the Spirit of God produces love in our lives and all the rest are simply ways in which that love manifests itself in our life. I've thought about that. But in the Greek, the the word fruit is singular. Galatians 5 verse 14, a little bit earlier, Paul says this, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. While I agree that love is the most important thing, I think there's another reason why uh, the singular, singular is used. And this is where my breakfast comes in. It actually could be my lunch, whatever it is. Now, I hope nobody's going to drool, but I have a bunch of grapes. I love grapes. We love grapes at our house. What's this? Is it fruit? Is, is a, a grapes fruit? Yeah. What's that? Is that fruit? So that's fruit. But all those are fruit, aren't they? But we call grapes fruit. So it's a singular, but there's lots of grapes involved in it. And that's the picture uh, that Paul's trying to get across here, is that it's not a buffet. We can't browse. We can't browse through the fruit of the Spirit. We can't browse for love or peace or patience or any of that. It's that total package. When we have God's Spirit in our lives, he gives us the total package. It's up to us whether we live in it or not, whether we uh, appropriate it or not. It's a bunch of fruit that's able to be lived out in our lives. You know, 
The thing about a bunch of grapes is they're not all the same, are they? And I could hold it up again and show you that uh, some are different colours but they're still the same fruit. Some are different sizes. Some are smaller, some are larger but they're all grapes, they're all fruit. And that's what God does in our lives, doesn't he? As in, in a church, uh, we have different people, different personalities, but the one spirit dwells in us and produces fruit in us individually. So he does it individually, but he does it corporately as well. And um, it's a package deal. So it's sort of like, I can't say, um, I'll take a little bit of love and I'll take a portion of peace and, and a spoonful of self-control, but I'll pass on the patience, thank you. We can't do that. We can't do that. It's one kind of fruit with nine different qualities. So it's a package deal. Another observation is that um, the focus is on Christian character. And there's been a lot of teaching over the years on, on um, the gifts of the Spirit, not so much teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, one writer that I read said that often uh, the gifts of the Spirit have to do with service, how I'm, how I'm serving God through my gifting, my, uh, what God has gifted me to do. And the graces of the Spirit, which is the fruit of the Spirit, is about our character, how we should live out our lives. Unfortunately, sometimes the emphasis on the gifts is elevated over the graces of the Spirit. But I believe what has to happen first is we have to experience the graces of God that love, peace, patience, kindness and all the rest so that then we might serve in the giftedness that God's given to us. In fact, Paul writes about that in, in 1 Corinthians 13 that we'll address in a moment. The focus is on Christian character. And the fourth thing, the fruit must be displayed individually and collectively. We're not given the fruit of the Spirit just so some people can be more kind than other people or some people can be more faithful. If we as a church community desire to be the church that God wants us to be, then all these nine virtues, all these nine fruit should be at work in our lives individually and collectively all the time. That doesn't mean that we're always going to be patient or always going to be loving, but it means that God's spirit is working in us. And Atherton Baptist should be characterised by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, by goodness, by faithfulness, by gentleness and self-control. That should be what people remember about us as a church. The comparison that Paul writes about in, in Galatians 5 here is that all those awful things are what we don't want people to see about our lives and about the church. We want to see our church reflecting the nature of Christ which is the fruit of the Spirit. Here's another observation and I'm sure those of us who are gardeners and farmers would recognise this. Not all fruit ripens at the same time. Is that correct? So we have seasons. Seasons for different type of fruit. And, And we have to allow the processes to fully take place. So If you imagine a cluster of nine individual grapes, uh, they don't all ripen at the same time. I've said that before. Some have different shapes, some have different sizes. If you pick them too early, they have a different taste. When you look at my life, you may see that the individual grape of joy is fully sweetened. But at the same time, that of patience may be a bit small and sour and shrunken. 
But if we look at any of our lives, we won't have all those things in great strength. But we do need to have uh, the willingness to submit and surrender to the Spirit so that he will bring them out to their fullness, their maturity at the right time. Another observation. The fruit of the Spirit are the result of living a normal Christian life. There's nothing... There's no exception for believers. It's the norm. The norm is to allow God's spirit to bring these fruit out in their lives. It shouldn't be an extraordinary thing. It shouldn't be unusual. It shouldn't be uh, not the norm when, people are living, when Christians are living in peace with each other or treat each other with kindness. It should be the norm. And sadly, because we allow external influences to come into our lives, we don't always reflect these virtues on a regular basis. And that's not, that's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that we are reflecting them as a part of our normal life. We daily surrender to God's will. We die to self, as Paul has said. We love God with everything we've got. We do everything we work. We do everything for God, as we reminded this morning. And so, what happens when, that, when we do that? The common transactions of life, the common interactions we have become those, if you were, sacred channels, sacred pathways for God to spread his fruit to others if we're living it out normally. And the last observation before we go to 1 Corinthians 13 is this. Bearing fruit is both a gift and a task. There's a, there's a paradox, there's a, a parallel uh, in living for Christ. Fruit is always a gift. We are given this gift of the fruit by God's Spirit but it still requires hard work and uh, a lot of the scriptures are like that. While the love of Christ is poured into our hearts, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that we should pursue love. We should chase after love and desire spiritual gifts. So we, we, it's to be gone after but God has given us this gift of love as well. In Galatians 5.16, we're told, uh, oh, missed it out, Galatians 5.16, to live by the Spirit, it's ours, but we have to appropriate it. It's not automatic that it happens. So, we could be given God's Spirit and we just choose not to love people. Well, that's not what God wants. Or we choose to be impatient, or we choose to be angry, or we choose to be uh, those that don't reflect who Christ is, his nature in our lives. And if we're truly to be the disciples of Christ, followers of him, then we should be reflecting his nature in our lives. So let's move on to 1 Corinthians 13 because that's really a passage that talks about love. And most of us would be familiar with this passage. Uh, Some people have called called it the famous love passage, 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 7 or 8. I believe it's a passage that helps us to understand what love is. We're going to look at it verse by verse and I think the main thing to understand about this is not, love is not primarily a feeling, it's an action. It's what we do because of the love that we've received. When Paul wrote this chapter, he wasn't writing it for weddings. It's often used at weddings. He wasn't writing it for that. He was writing it in between uh, chapters 12 and 14 that we have in our Bible. But remember, it was a part of one long letter. And he had been speaking to the Corinthians uh, on spirit, the use of spiritual gifts. There were some disputes and divisions in the church at Corinth. They argued about which spiritual gift was the greatest. 
Some were more selfish. Some were full of pride. They were taking each other to court. They were impatient with others. So Paul wrote to address the character that they should have when he wrote this passage on love in the middle of this turmoil that they were facing. In fact, other New Testament writers struggled with this concept of love that they'd received from God and how to communicate it to their readers and their listeners. Because there was lots of words about love in the, New Te- in the Greek language, but this was a new word that Paul was writing about. This was a new word that the New Testament writers used to describe the love that was received from God. The Greek words that were already in use for love related to um, sexual connotations or, or, or natural uh, uh, affection or, or brotherly love. But this was something different. It was supernatural love that was shown to us when Jesus came to this world and died for us. It was supernatural love because God showed this love to the utterly unworthy, sinful mankind. It's a love that's supernatural because it proceeds from God who is, in, who is himself love. It's a love lavished upon others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. That's the sort of love that Paul writes about in Galatians and in Corinthians. You've heard my definition before of this word agape or agape love, which is the Greek word. Total love for the other person's benefit without any expectation of anything in return. And that's the love that's used here in 1 Corinthians. Let's read this through. Actually, I'll read it through in a moment. D.L. Moody once remarked that some men occasionally take a journey into 1 Corinthians 13 and have a look at it, but very few people actually live there. Some people read it and say, oh, that's nice, that's what I like, but very few people actually live it out, is what uh, D.L. Moody was saying. So the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, again, familiar verses, I'm sure. Let me just read them for you. I want to talk in, one, in this uh, second part of the message about the preeminence of love. This is the whole passage. I'll just flick it over, flick past there. There we are. Deal moody. The preeminence of love, verses 1 to 3, and the practice of love. So why is love preeminent? And this is what Paul says in verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have, <coughs> pardon me, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. What's he saying there in this first part of the verse? He's saying basically, whatever I do and whatever I say is useless without love. It's useless without love. In the first century, whenever the pagan people went to worship their God, there was often a big gong, uh, large symbol outside the, outside the entrance. And as people came to worship, each person would take the banger and bang the gong to say they were going in to worship their God. So Paul is saying that even if we were so blessed that we could speak with the eloquence of other languages or heavenly language, if we didn't have love, it would be as useless as a ridiculous act of pounding on the gong 
as you went into the place of worship. That's how ridiculous it would be. And that pounding on the gong was meant to wake up their uh, non-existent deity. That's how worthless that would be. Verse 2, Paul says that love is more important than knowledge. Think about this. Even if we know everything, if we know about space travel, if we know about nuclear science, if we know about medicine, philosophy, if we know about psychology and theology, but we don't have love, we are nothing. So we can have all the knowledge about these things. But if we don't have love as the basis, we are nothing. Paul ultimately says in that verse, and this is pretty challenging, that love is more important than faith. Did you hear what he said? He said, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now Paul doesn't say uh, faith is wrong because in Hebrews the writer there says without faith, faith it's impossible to please God. But he's saying the preeminence of love is that it needs to be the foundation of all that we are, all of our actions. In verse 3 he says that love is even more important than generosity and sacrifice. If I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my body to the flame, sacrifice, but have not love, I am nothing. What's the basis of your life today? What, what do you base your life on? Are you based on the love that God has given to you that you might share that love to others? Well, he doesn't leave people hanging. He describes in the next four verses what love is and I'm sure these are familiar. This is what he says. You may even know them off by heart. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Familiar verse, isn't it? I wonder how we apply that to our lives. It does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. I want to look at these descriptions just a little bit more closely this morning and see if I can elaborate on them very briefly because the fruit of the Spirit is what God gives to us when we stay connected to the vine. Just the grape illustration. If we stay connected to the vine, then God will give us this love. Let me explain that as I go. Love is patient. This word basically means someone who's able to avenge themselves for wrong against them, but they choose to refrain from doing that. Someone who is patient could give payback to somebody, but they choose not to. It's this idea of persevering as well. Love is kind. This meaning here is is to show who you truly are. Love is showing who you truly are. To show who you truly are in the way of being useful to, for others. So what this, does this love do? This love volunteers to help others when they're in need. If you truly love someone, you'll be kind to them. You will show yourself as useful to them. Love does not envy. Instead of wishing that I had what you have, Love helps me to celebrate what God has given you without being jealous of it for myself. That's a hard one, isn't it? 
I want the flashiest car or the best house. But I enjoy seeing what God has given to others. Love does not boast. I think this is pretty easy to understand, isn't it? But there's a word that's used in New King James a version which literally means love is not a braggart. Love doesn't brag about who you are. It could also mean love is not a windbag. Love does not boast about yourself. The fruit of love does not brag about what I have or what I've done. Love is not proud, the next, verse, the next part of the verse says. And this is, this, this, the background of this word is to, is to blow or to puff someone yourself up. So love doesn't do that. Pride has no place in a believer's life. Because I think uh, Pat mentioned it earlier, everything we have is by the grace of God alone. Love is not rude. The meaning behind this word, rude, is uh, to behave in an ugly, indecent or obscene manner. Love is not like that. Love acts in a worthy way. Love is not easily angered. And I have to work on this one. I missed it out, sorry. Love is not easily angered. A person who is living under the influence of love is not prone to violent anger or or constantly exasperated. Love is not self-seeking. It's the opposite to agape love. It's that love which wants to be there for the other person, not about what I do for myself. Ah, oh, I skipped one over. Here we are. Love is not easily angered. Here's one that I think we all have to work on. I know I do. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The word here he, Paul uses is, is an accounting term. It's uh, not, not to add up all the things that somebody's done against you and throw it back at them when they do something else again. It doesn't keep that list of wrongs done in it. And this is God, isn't he? This is like God. What's God do with all our sins? The Bible Psalm tells us he throws them into the deepest part of the ocean, never to be remembered anymore. That's what Jesus did. And so we've got to reflect that nature in our lives. It is not easy. It's not easy to do this, but God's Spirit enables us to do it. Love does not delight in evil, the Bible tells us. We shouldn't enjoy hearing about other people's sins or their mistakes or focus on the bad stuff that happens in our world. Love is not, is not evil, does not delight in evil. But some positives, love rejoices with the truth. The word truth here is the opposite to, word, to that word of evil was in that previous part. Love celebrates and applauds the virtues of those around us. And I'm sure that we're, we're, we've, we've been able to love like that and we've been loved by that. Love always protects, Paul writes. And there's an interesting picture here. One artist who painted a portrait of Alexander the Great made um, a shadow from Alexander's hand conceal a scar on his brow. So this, there was this ugly scar on Alexander the Great's brow but the artist somehow had his hand positioned so that the shadow of the hand covered up the scar. And that's what this word protection is like. It, 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 instead of exposing blemishes and sins in a person's life, it's, it's, it's a covering them over with the cloak of love. You know, not counting those sins against them. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, 
love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. When I am quick to notice fault in somebody else and I tell others about it, I'm not practising love. Love always protects the person. Love always trusts. The idea here is that we don't lose faith in others, whatever they've done, whether they've messed up or hurt us, we do not think the worst of them. We delight in giving people second and third chances when necessary. Love always trusts. Love always hopes to expect with desire. No matter how dark things are, how bleak things are around us, love maintains an attitude of hope that times can get better. It's a refusal to take final Sorry, take failure as final. Love hopes for more. And and lastly, love always perseveres. This means to remain under something. Love hangs in there for long-term relationships. Love hangs in there knowing that we're going to spend eternity with each other so we might as well get along with each other now is the thought that comes out of that. How do we do this? I want to finish this morning with how can we live a life of love? First of all, we can love those who are close to us. Someone has said this, to love the whole world for me is no chore, the only real problems, my neighbour next door. Uh, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? That we have trouble loving those that are close to us. We are commanded to love, no matter how inconsiderate, our spouses, no matter how unreasonable our parents are, no matter how disrespectful our children are and no matter how selfish our friends are. We are to love those who are close to us. It's not easy. It's a challenge. That's why we need God's spirit to bring out this, this fruit in our lives. We need to love those who are different from us and uh, I see it every day as I talk to people that have this hang up about this particular lifestyle or that particular choice of music or that particular culture. We're going to love those who are different from us because Christ loves them the same as us. We need to work hard at loving those who are different because Christ has loved us. Love those who disagree with us. This is a bit of a toughie, isn't it? The thing to remember that if the people that disagree with us are Christians, they are still our family, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. We can choose to disagree with people, but we need to choose to love them just the same. They are still family members. When I was looking at some illustrations, I found this, love those who irritate us. It's so hard. That person really hurt me when they said that, or that person won't even talk to me. How can I love them? There's this Special, special effort required. There was an early archbishop in the um, British uh, Islands uh, Empire who, his name was Archbishop Cranmer and he died a martyr for his faith and uh, there was a story that was told that if you did him a disfavour, if you did something against him, you had him as a friend for life. Now that doesn't sort of match up, does it? But before he was martyred, he made a very surprising statement. He said, I never had greater pleasure in all my life than to forget and forgive injuries 
and to show kindness to them that sought evil to me. Man, God must have really been in his life. Sometimes when I highlight the imperfections of another person or the sin of another person, then that's to boost my image up in my own eyes. I need to remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8 when he said, let him who uh, is without sin cast the first stone. So what can we do if we're not demonstrating the fruit of love in our life? This is what we can do. Confess your lack of love. God, you know I find it hard to love this person. Don't make any excuse for unloving attitudes. Own it before God. Lord, I know it's my problem and I've been sinning against people that I don't love. So confess your lack of love. Like I said before, focus on God's love for you. Read the scriptures about God's love. Read the Psalms. Listen to songs. Listen to hymns that speak of how God has shown us his grace and mercy to remind ourselves that this is what God's done for us. And then live every day with the knowledge that even if no one else cares about you, God does. God loves you. And allow his love to be the reservoir that you feed from to love others. What do you do if you're not demonstrating the fruit of love in your life? You need to work on it. It's, it's, it's that gift that's been given, but we need to work on it, as I said earlier. You need to identify someone that's hard for you to love. And if you do that, pray and ask God to help you change your attitude toward this person. And I guarantee things will improve. Treat that person in a loving way. Have you ever noticed that our feelings follow our actions? If we do something wrong, then we feel guilty. If we do something right, then we're excited about that. So doing the loving thing is a good place to start. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus said this, Dear children, let us not love... Oh, sorry, John said this. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I wonder if that's your desire as you display the fruit of the Spirit. One danger of preaching about the fruit of the Spirit is that often people think pastors have got it all together. They must be doing this all the time. Well, I read this story of a pastor and it seems to... uh, I, I resonate with it anyhow. He says, Let me tell you what happened to me on Thursday. I stopped by the hospital to visit someone and jumped out of my car and began walking briskly toward the door. I saw an older gentleman out of the corner of my eye who was walking very slowly and using a a cane, a walking stick. I swerved around him and raced by. And when he saw that I was in a hurry, he said, I'll let you go first. My conscience poked me, but I just kept on walking. When I got almost to the front doors, he shouted out, I used to be like you once when I was younger. Man, that's putting the knife in him. Interesting, isn't it? He said, my heart sank because I wasn't sure what he really meant. At first I thought he was referring to my ability to walk fast, but then I wondered if he was thinking back to a time when he was just as unloving and rude as I am today. I was in too much of a hurry to sit down or slow down and and talk to someone who may have been going to the hospital for a test, to see his wife or to visit an old friend. I have no idea because I didn't stop and take the time to love him. In fact, I treated him rather indifferently. 
which may be worse than expressing outright hatred to him. I think, yeah, I've been there, I've done that. Been too busy or not taking the time. The fruit of the Spirit is always on display in our lives. We need to realise that other people are watching what we're doing. Back to my lunch. Do you know, I searched around Atherton for plastic grapes. Couldn't find any. Plastic grapes work really well. But these are real grapes, they're not plastic. But I've seen some plastic grapes that look real, have you? Some real imitations. In fact, the, 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 the essence of those imitation grapes are that they're fake. God wants real fruit. Real fruit in our lives, not fake fruit. He wants us to let other people see how important he is in our lives. So they might say, I want what you've got. Not the fake stuff, the real stuff. Bruce Wilkinson is an author that I've read over the years and he wrote this book. I haven't read this one. I'm, I want to, now that I've, I've seen a quote out of it. He talks about secrets of the vine and he says this in it. Nearly half of all Christians bear little or no fruit. Another third bear some fruit, but only about 5% bear a lot of fruit. And he concludes by saying this. Bearing fruit is not some unique phenomenon reserved for certain types of Christians. It's the destiny of every believer. I want to see the Holy Spirit bear his fruit in your life. I want to see him bear his fruit in my life. But we have to stay connected to the vine. And... uh, Jesus gives us a very clear example. He says this in John 15 and verse 4. Remain in me, I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So can I encourage you, whatever the fruit is that we're looking at over the coming weeks, that we stay with the vine. We stay in the vine. I want to finish this morning with a... uh, a verse by an author, Amy Carmichael. Some of you might have read her poems or songs or books in the past. And uh, these verses come out of one song, or one poem rather, which she calls If. And this is how it reads. If I belittle those whom I am called to serve, talk of their weak points in contrast perhaps with what I think are my strong points. If I adopt a superior attitude, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I take offence, easily. If I am content to continue in cool unfriendliness, though friendship be possible, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I feel bitterly towards those who condemn me, forgetting that if they knew me as I know myself, they would condemn me much more, then I know nothing of Calvary love. The fruit of the Spirit, love, learning to love, is what God wants us to do. Can I encourage you to take some of those practical steps this way if you're struggling with demonstrating the fruit of love in your life? Confess your lack of love. Focus on God's love for you. Identify someone that is hard for you to love and treat that person in a loving way. See what God can do. The greatest thing, the greatest joy of a pastor's heart would be for someone who's visited to say, hey, the people in your church, they really love each other. That's what I'm praying for. What are you praying for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you and praise you that you have given us your spirit. Those who have put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour have your spirit within us, Lord. 
and you want to bring out these fruit in our lives, Lord. You want to bring out love. Father, I pray that, that as we consider this, this week, Lord, that we might find your strength to love the unlovely. We might find your strength to love those who have hurt us in the past. We might find your strength to love those who need to be loved, Lord. And we might do it in the name of Jesus. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.